Good morning, everybody. How are you today? This is a long weekend, right? Labor Day, Monday, amen? We don't labor on Labor Day, amen. All right. So the office will be closed Monday, right, Colton? Where'd Colton go? He's not in here. Colton ran out. He left. Luke chapter 9, join me today in Luke chapter 9 as we continue our exposition in this wonderful gospel. Uh, we will also be, just for a moment, um, in the book of Philippians, a letter of Philippians. I want to um, just talk a little bit about that uh, before we go into the passage because the heart of what we see in Paul's letter to Philippians is also the heart we see in what happens in Luke chapter 9 today. So I'm going to just begin in verse 15. Uh, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Well, today the principle we find in the primary teaching in Luke fits perfectly uh, into Paul's words to the Philippians. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he is letting them know that his time in prison had actually advanced the gospel, not stopped it. One of the reasons you persecute religious people by putting them in prison is to do what? To stop them, to silence them, to demoralize them, to take away their freedom, to limit their ability to, to travel and spread the gospel and in Paul's case, he was overjoyed to tell his fellow brothers that his imprisonment had had the exact opposite effect as the gospel had advanced. So the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, Paul says. Caesar's elite, highly trained soldiers, highly trained soldiers had now heard the gospel as it penetrated the entire body of the Imperial Guard. So instead of actually demoralizing Paul and his fellow brothers in Christ, God had used the situation to show them that even the great Caesar, no matter how hard he tried, had no control over what? The gospel. Had no control over the word of God. Paul's situation had proven that the gospel would advance even behind prison walls. Then the verses that I just read to you, verses 15 through 18, show that not even the motivation behind preaching Christ really matters to Paul. I've always struggled with that passage, to be honest with you, because Paul says the motivation doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is it is Christ's name being proclaimed that matters to him. And what Paul means by that, and this is the, the rub I've always had with this passage, is that surely he does not mean a, a false Christ or a wrong Christ. That's not what he means. It's just somebody out there claiming the name of Christ but then preaching something that's not true. What he means is someone that has a wrong motivation in what they are doing is fine as long as they're preaching Christ's name truthfully. That's what he is saying, which is fascinating to me. He says, some preach from envy and rivalry, from a position of selfish ambition. Their desire is to take advantage of the gap in leadership while Paul is in prison. 
Maybe try to steal some of his followers or make Paul look like he had done something wrong. Maybe he's doing that. Yeah, we know the real reason why Paul is in jail. But then others preach from goodwill. They love me. These people, they love me. They continue to preach in my place because they know I'm behind bars. So they take care of things here, out there, while I'm in prison. So what then, Paul says? What do we make of this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, that would mean false claims, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. The name of the message today, you're going to love this, I hope. The Unknown Exorcist. How you like that? Is that a good grabber for you? Came to me in my office right before I came out here. Hallelujah. Talk about God waiting to the last minute, right? The Unknown Exorcist. He who is not against us is for us. Now let's keep Paul's words in mind and rejoin the 12 in Jesus uh, in this Luke chapter 9, which is a very long chapter. Have y'all noticed that? Luke chapter 9 is a very long chapter. So the last time we gathered, we were bystanders watching Jesus and his disciples in the midst of ministry after they had come down from the mountain where Christ was transfigured and where Elijah and Moses had appeared from eternity, appeared from eternity, and spoken with him about his upcoming crucifixion and resurrection in Jerusalem. While they had been on the mountain, the nine disciples that remained behind had failed to expel a demon from a young boy. Do you remember this? Have failed. This failure had provided an opportunity for the scribes and other detractors to argue, to attack, to try to discredit the apostles. Jesus, Peter, James, and John arrive, enter into the confusion. Jesus tells the father to bring the son to him, and the boy comes. Jesus expels the demon and then explains to the disciples that this particular possession of this demon is only expelled by prayer, by prayer. While they were whirling from the encounter, Jesus then says these words, let these words sink into your ears. He doesn't say that anywhere else except here in Luke. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The disciples, the Bible says, were confused and confounded by this claim and did not comprehend the depth of what Jesus was saying. Did not understand that at all. Then right after that, the entire group of disciples get into an argument. Remember what they were arguing about? Who was the what? Who was the greatest? I mean, can't you just hear the disciples arguing about that? Can't you hear like Peter and the fishermen saying something like, well, I'm the greatest because I was the first one that Jesus called. Don't you remember? It was my boat that caught all the fish. Amen? Amen? It was my boat. But then can't you hear another one say, well, no, I'm the greatest because I gave up my post as a Roman tax collector, as a tax collector of Rome. You can't begin to understand the amount of future earnings that I gave up to follow Jesus, then another one would say, no, I'm the greatest because we gave up our fishing business and most likely our inheritance along with it to follow Jesus. Top that. Can't you hear them wrangling about that, about those disciples fighting? 
But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And then we have this passage today that seems like it is completely, as my dad would say, out of left field. Anybody ever say that when something's just totally strange? This is just totally out of left field. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is what? For you. Now let's be sure that we grab the context of, of John's statement. So there has been an argument between the apostles about which one of them is the greatest. Jesus supernaturally knows the reasoning of their minds then brings this child and rebukes them with this living illustration of this child. So what we see is we see a rivalry, a rivalry spring up in the hearts of the apostles. And Jesus corrects them by saying they are to receive all like a child, but in fact, we come to find out they have already refused to allow someone else to minister in Jesus' name, this unknown exorcist. So not only is there a rivalry among themselves as who is the greatest, but there is also a rivalry for those that are outside themselves. This unknown exorcist. Now we're not sure of the timing of this event, but it seems to be rather recent. So this rivalry was between the apostles and some other unknown but rather effective exorcist. So John answers, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Now notice the text says, John answered. <clears throat> Very rarely in the scripture is John the one speaking. But John answers. So something about this moment right here with Jesus, something about this moment reminded John of something. And so John speaks up and reports that he and the other disciples had tried to shut down what was to them an unauthorized exorcist from casting out demons. And the fact that John said it probably means that, it was, that this was not something that had happened to the other nine disciples while he, James, and Peter and John, because they were all up on the mountain with Jesus, so it must have happened some other time. And since the disciples are being corrected publicly by Jesus, John felt he needed to offer this scenario to make sure they had handled it correctly. Are y'all with me? So in John's mind, it seems he thought they had handled it correctly. But now, in light of Christ's words about the child and receiving him because he has received me, perhaps John thinks they didn't. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. 
I hope you like that passage. You're going to hear it about four more times. Amen? So who was, who was this unknown exorcist? There's no way to know. But it seems, judging by the testimony of John, that it was a man that claimed to be a legitimate follower of Jesus. But because he was not part of the who? Twelve. Because he was not a part of the twelve, they considered him false and used their authority as called apostles of Christ to stop him from casting out demons. And notice the scripture says what? Demons plural. Amen? Demons plural. So this guy is being quite effective at expelling evil spirits from random people within earshot from the apostles at some point. Now I think that that probably stung a little bit. Would you amen that? What had they just failed at doing? Casting out a demon. And yet this unauthorized to them, this, this unknown exorcist is seemingly simply and easily casting out demons at will where the apostles can see him. So this had to, to sting. So this unknown exorcist was successful where the 12 had failed. This unknown follower of Christ seemed to be able to cast out demons fairly easy. The unknown exorcist seemed to be alone, yet acting in conquering faith. He did not walk along with Jesus and the 12, yet he was being faithful to carry out the mission of Christ. The unknown exorcist, in a sense, was the child that Jesus was just talking about, in a sense. The unknown exorcist has no fanfare, has no one to argue with about who is the greatest. He is acting in faith, as Jesus had said, to cleanse people from demons. So in a sense, the apostles are arguing about who is the greatest, and yet Jesus kind of shows this unknown exorcist to be what? The greatest. Stinging, subtle rebuke. Perhaps that is what jogged in John's mind the reason for the question. Perhaps John thought, if we are to receive the child, did we do right in trying to stop this exorcist? It's also interesting that John is the one speaking up here, as I've mentioned already. The Bible hardly ever records John speaking up individually, very rarely. Even in his gospel, how does John speak most of the time in the gospel of John? Third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself, just mysteriously. He talks about himself in third person. Perhaps John was the one who took the initiative to shut down this unknown exorcist, perhaps. Also remember, in the beginning of their time together, Jesus referred to John and his brother James as who? The sons of who? Thunder. Yes, the sons of thunder, most likely because what? Because they were loud and because they argued and fought a lot. In fact, next week, what are they going to offer to do for Jesus to Samaria? Call down what? 
fire, the sons of thunder. I mean, couldn't you see John finding out about this exorcist and running over to him and trying to stop him and not being able to handle it and carrying that nagging memory around with him for who knows how long, probably somewhat embarrassed about it? Think about that. What are you doing? Did Jesus call you to do this? You're not one of us. You need to stop this now. That's our job. We're the ones that Christ called specifically and commissioned to do this, cease and desist now. Probably kind of what John said. In our culture, what we would do today is we'd threaten them first, right? We'd threaten them, then we'd call them a false prophet, then we'd get a lawyer and sue them, amen? That's what we do in our culture today. But John just tries to get him to stop. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For he who is not against you is for you. It should have been apparent to John and the other disciples that this mysterious exorcist was not against them, but against who? Satan, against the enemy. The unknown exorcist was clearly expelling demons in Jesus' name and not trying to antagonize or belittle the disciples unless there is something that we do not know that is not in the text. This man was working miracles in Jesus' name. Therefore, he was to be left alone. So as Jesus says this, what time is it? Man, y'all are going to love me today. Y'all are going to love me today. Don't get used to this, okay? Don't get used to this. What attitude is Jesus going after when he says, do not stop them? The kind of attitude Jesus is warning about is intolerance, intolerance, and narrow exclusivism. Listen very carefully to these last few words. John regards his call as a disciple, not as a call to service, which is first and foremost what we are called to as Christians. John is acting or has an a mentality of entitlement, of privilege and exclusion. John. Now, who would John later come to be known as? John the disciple or the apostle of what? Love. So here is John acting in ways that are quite different than was characterized in his gospel. So many believe that there was some change that happened on, on down the line to John a little bit later. But here he is. He is acting in an attitude of entitlement, privilege, and exclusion. His attitude is not only a sharp contrast to the lesson of the previous story about acceptance of children but it denounces the independent exorcist for doing precisely what he and the disciples could not do. Jesus had implored the disciples to honor those of no status at all, but they have refused partnership with the one who did not share the status that they assumed for themselves. This is a very stark contrast that Jesus is trying to make. That just because he is not a member of the 12 apostles, he can still call upon my name, operate with my name, and expel demons in my name. 
Do not discriminate against him. Allow him to operate freely. Is that a stunning rebuke for us today? Amen. Stunning rebuke. Why? Because just because someone does not associate with us doesn't mean they're what? Wrong. Just because they don't associate with us doesn't mean they're wrong. And this correction is a good one. It's, it, it, it stepped on my toes uh, in a number of ways. Number one, being Baptist, right? How many Baptists are in the house today? Amen? I mean, I mean, do we not believe that, I mean, this is what I've always said about being Baptist. The reason why I'm Baptist, everybody listening out there, she can criticize me about this later. I am Baptist because I believe we are more right about more things in the Scripture than any other denomination. That's why I'm in the, Baptist, in the Baptist denomination, because I believe we are serious about the Word of God and that we believe we're right about most of the stuff we believe. Amen? But does that mean that everybody else is wrong? No. <laughs> Somebody said yes. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Because, truthfully and honestly, do we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're right about everything we believe? No. Are we certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that other people that believe different things are completely wrong about what they believe? No. So in certain things, we must exercise humility and acceptance. Certain things, other things not. There's, there's orthodox things that you don't budge on, but there are things that you can. So many times we think as Baptists that we are right and everyone else is wrong, and if they are not with us, they are operating in error and against us. This is not always true and we must be careful to not make our denomination and the way that we do things a test of fellowship among the brethren, which means I will not associate with you, I will not be a friend with you, I will not talk to you because you practice X, Y, Z. There are things, we don't have time to go into them all today, there are things that would cause me as a believer to not fellowship with someone, but they are very few, very few things, very few. We do have a mandate to call out heretical beliefs and sinful behavior that is an undeniable fact that is seen throughout the Bible, but we are not to restrict the servants of Christ just because they are operating without our permission, approval, or association. Now, someone who believes strongly in authority like I do, that is a hard thing for me to accept. I would have been John. I would have been him. I mean, if I'd been traveling around with the 12 and I saw some guy out there exercising people or expelling demons out of people in the name of Jesus, I'd have walked over there and asked him a bunch of questions. Okay, but Jesus knew, but Jesus is divine and he knew the truth. He could see into that man and knew he was legitimate. But today, can we always determine that? No, we're not Jesus. So sometimes we have to investigate. Sometimes we have to be somewhat skeptical. If somebody's using, because there's a whole, there's a bunch of people running around here throwing Jesus' name around that Jesus has nothing to do with. Have you read the passage in Matthew 7? You remember that? Let's go there, and that's what we'll close with today. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Now that I've said it, I hope I can find it. Amen. Matthew 7, verse 21. Now, I told y'all, y'all were getting out of here, and now I've now got, got my second win. We're going to go a little bit longer, I guess. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. These are the ones who use Jesus' name that Jesus is not talking about in this passage. 
The, the unknown exorcist is within God's will and is within Jesus Christ. These people are not that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. These are the ones that we have to watch out for. Or we have to help snatch them from the fire. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And here's the scary part, verse 22. On that day, meaning what day? The day of judgment. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, say it with me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is not applying that to the unknown exorcist. The unknown exorcist is working within the will of God. But for us in this day and time, we do have to be somewhat careful in what we get involved with because we know in the last days, many, even Jesus said what? Many false Christs, many false prophets will come. So just because somebody is claiming they're doing something in Jesus' name doesn't make it right. But if they are, and, they, and after examination, and they differ from us a little bit, and they don't want to be called Baptist, are they against us or for us? For us. Just because they don't call themselves Baptist doesn't mean they're against us. Amen? And that's what, that's what this passage is all about. Last couple things. Interpersonal rivalry. Interpersonal rivalry. The disciples grumbling about who's the greatest. The disciples seeing this unknown exorcist out here actually expelling demons in the name of Jesus and going and, and grumbling with him. That is not the trait of a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rivalry is not cooperation. Love and fellowship is. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Would you pray with me? Father, we have learned a valuable lesson this morning from the Apostle John in his impulsiveness to, and with good intention, to see exorcisms, exorcisms happening from a man that is not one of the twelve him being skeptical and trying to stop him, Lord, we have learned that those that are not against us are actually for us. And Lord, let us apply this paradigm to our lives as it regards the faith. As we walk through our lives, help us to not discriminate too quickly when people claim your son doing good works unless there is something blatantly wrong in what they are doing and in the way they believe who you are. So Father, help us mature as a body of Christ today from this passage. Because Lord, we are in the last days. We are in the perilous times that Paul talks about. 
We are experiencing it and living it out now in the United States of America. And I pray that we take your words seriously. I pray that we take our relationships seriously. I pray that we take matters of the faith seriously, as Jesus and the apostles took them seriously. And Father, if there is one here today, or on live feed, that has been listening, and that your word and your spirit has convicted convicted them of their sin, we pray that, that they would come into your kingdom in belief and faith and repentance. And Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.